Hello everyone and welcome back to Gem Pursuit. I'm your host, Matthew Weldon, and I'm joined today by my trusty co-host, Elise Ketcher. Hello, Elise. Hi, everybody. And we are back. I know you might have thought that the last episode was the last one in the series, and of course it was, but we noticed that after recording that, that we had 39 episodes of Gem Pursuit recorded, and we couldn't leave it on an odd number. We had to get to that 40, so today... We are going to have a dual duel. Elise, <laughs> do you want to elaborate on that? I think I might have to, Matthew. <laughs> I, think, I think it's been left at my, uh, at my feet. So, um, yes, no, our dual duel is about... Uh, we thought we'd stay on the ladies' theme and go... Uh, into our favorite designers although you know it's would be really hard for us to um, not choose one the the four ladies that we've already spoken about but we're going to introduce two new lady designers women designers um, in this particular episode and we're going to go toe-to-toe with these designers and see who you our listeners thinks is the more compelling designer so so we are going to go head to head put forward our arguments some opening statements the meat of the case and then some closing statements and then leave it to you which designer you prefer based on those cases there's some really they're well-known names i think uh, although you might not recognize them initially, you will definitely recognize their pieces if, if you look them up on Google or the internet or whatever it is. Uh, so, yeah. And, of course, we've got so many requests for this, Elise. And to be honest, I've missed it. I can't actually remember the... You only miss it because you win all the time. I think we were a draw, though, actually. Last time I won. <laughs> so. Yeah. But the- and then the time for that, you won because of the terrible like uh eiffel tower gate ross i'm just looking at ross i hope there is a question today based on like the height of buildings maybe the empire state building something like that hypothetically it better not be um but anyway it is gem trivial pursuit i know so many have people have been asking for it and we've got an extended edition of it today so looking forward to that one to regaining the title back to where it belongs yes with me um so oh burn (laughs) (laughs) so without any further ado elise let's get started so matthew and i have decided to choose two of our most well my favorite uh female designer excluding the four that we've already spoken about and Matthew has chosen a designer as well. And so I'm going to start um, and we're going to go through like the the beginnings of how our designers got into the jewellery industry, um, what their inspiration and style is and go through maybe some of their most famous pieces or what to look for if you're going to be collecting. Um, and my designer is... Probably not as well known as the designer that Matthew has chosen today, but she should be known. She is an uh, incredible designer that was used in the 19, uh, late 1960s into the 1980s by Tiffany & Co. And this is really where she gained her grounding and her following for her later adventures which she did by herself but really I'm going to be focusing today on her time with Tiffany and co and it is of course Angela Cummings for those of you who may have never heard about uh, Angela Cummings she is a well was born in Austria in the 1940s but um, I would say that she's more quintessentially American because she moved as a child to America Um, lived just on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., and then only ventured back to Europe to gain her artistic training. So did her design and art in Italy, her studies in Italy. Um, And then she also became a gemologist and stone cutter 
slash I'd say more of a, a, a stone specialist uh, she in actually Germany. knew how to cut stones she was slightly but mm. she knew her expertise in in stonework is really why I love her so much because the way that she uses gemstones in her jewelry it becomes a really important part of the way in which her jewelry pieces are put together the most famous story that I know about her and that I really love about her is that she was quite tenacious. So after being a student for quite a few years, she goes into Tiffany & Co and she's looking through their latest collections and she's about to graduate and she sees Jean Schlumberger's latest designs in Tiffany uh, in New York and she's looking around Tiffany & Co. She sees these designs. She's super inspired. Of course, she's a struggling student anyway at this stage. And she decides then and there that she is going to become Jean Schlumberger's assistant without him knowing this. <laughs> so she just decides herself that she's going to become his assistant. And that's what's going to happen after she graduates. So after she graduates, she comes uh, to Tiffany and Co. And she's like, I'm here. I've arrived. I'm ready to be your assistant. And of course, she's told, well, you know, Jean Schlumberger has an amazing team around him and he doesn't require an assistant at this time. So she's turned down, but she becomes a part of the Tiffany and Co. team in the nine in 1967 under the head designer at the time who was Donald Claflin Claflin um and he is quite well known in the uh 50s and 60s for doing the kind of uh um cartoon style brooches of animals and things like that like the the very kind of cute lions and the cute ducks that Tiffany and Co did and she starts to work under him but what I find really uh really incredible incredible about her is that when I look at um when I look at Donald's uh, kind of con contribution to Tiffany and Co and the way that he designs she doesn't really take on his style which when you look at other creative directors or designers that have begun in a certain area, for instance, um, uh, Bourvon, if you look at their early designs that are done by, not by René Bourvon himself, but if you look at the ones that are done by Susan Bell Perron, the designers that come after her kind of adopt part of her style DNA and then continue on from there and kind of evolve later into their own. Whereas Angela Cummings doesn't really take on Donald's DNA. She stays true to herself. So four years after she starts, so she starts in about 1967 with Tiffany. Um, in 1974, her first, uh, her first designs are released under her name and they're quintessentially her. And if you look at anything that's done by her for Tiffany um, during those years, it's about, I'd say about, you know, give or take 20 years that she's with, with Tiffany & Co. Because she leaves Tiffany & Co. in 1984. All of her pieces look, have this style DNA that runs through it. It's a lot of inlay work, which I'll get to because that's going to be my last part of my argument for her being the best is she loves to hike. She lives in the outdoors. She lives near the mountains and all of her pieces look almost organic. They look like something that you would have seen in nature when you're walking around nature. Even if you look up at the trees, when you're walking through the forest and you see the light coming through the trees, like those shadows that are on the on the floor as you're walking, a lot of her pieces, you can see that kind of, you know, odd round shape that comes through the canopy. 
Um, also, you know, she's she loves the ocean and you see a lot of fishes and scales and snakes and sometimes knots, you know, organic knots and ropes and things like that in her designs, but all done in a very unique way that is her. Um, and we talked a lot about um, Elsa Peretti as well, about how simplicity is actually quite complex. And this is where um, this is where Angela Cummings really shines because, as I was telling you beforehand, she is an expert in gemstones. She's a gemologist as, as well as being a designer and craftsman. She was probably the first person who took inlaying to a new level. So when we talk about inlay, we're talking about um, taking gemstones and cutting them into shapes and then having them sit flush inside metal or having metal sit flush inside gemstone. Um, and that sounds like it could be quite simple, but it's extremely difficult to do where it all looks like it fit together perfectly in the beginning. And not only that, it's about making sure that it's durable because we have these gemstones that have a different hardness to the metal that they're sitting in. And if they're sitting flush, it means that one might wear differently over a time period. So the way that she does this is almost baffling to the jewellery world when they see it. And it reminds me a lot of some of the thing, the innovative things that our previous designers have done where it was almost thought impossible to do until it was done. So... For me, I'm going to go into the last part, which is the, the, the pieces to look out for, the pieces that if you wanted to go and be wowed by something, what you should search for and what you should look at and appreciate. So for her, it would be um, her negative and positive earrings. So she did like um, inlay with either mother of pearl black jade, lapis lazuli, and opal. And what she used to do was she would make one earring that was uh, any shape. Most of the time she did something that was quite voluminous. So either like a, an oval or like a rounded triangle or uh, like a, a rounded square earring style. And remember, it's the 80s, so nothing is small, so they're big. And one of them would have like an inlay background of Mother of Pearl with yellow gold like dots or stripes or um, checkerboard pattern on it. And then the opposite earring would be the opposite. So instead of having the gold like uh, instead of having the background as mother of pearl with the gold inlay, it would be a gold background with mother of pearl inlay on the opposite or whatever gemstone she used. And they're a perfect pair, but they're opposite to each other. And she did this as sets as well. So you can also find bangles that have the gold inlay with the mother of pearl uh, uh gold background with the mother of pearl inlay and vice versa um and she also did uh, necklaces like this as well and for me th this work of hers is where she really really shines and today even in the antique and vintage world these are super super collectible items I mean they're very infrequent to come across even. They are. Yeah. And they're things that people never let go of. So once people like every single year that I've been in the jewelry industry, they go up and up in price every year. Um, and, you know, they're considered vintage because we're not talking really about a hundred years ago. We're talking about something that were the last time it was kind of created was in the 1980s. 
So, you know, and she's still alive and she's still, uh, after the 1980s, she started to create other collections for Bloomingdale's and things like this. Uh, And she travelled to Japan and she used a lot of um, Asian motifs. But I don't want to talk about that because for me, this is really the collection or the pieces that I really enjoy. I think that is her. Work. I know. I know that as soon as said Angela Cummings, I, that's her quintessential style that I think of. Anyways, does especially the, the the contrast and the or the reverse earrings are obviously they can be bangles as well. But in my cross examination, Elise, you know she's got some really interesting. Uh, you know, characteristics of her personality, like her tenaciousness to, you know, her, her assumption is like that. It's like, you know, almost a child would say, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I want to work in, you know, for, or I want to play for Manchester United. And they just kind of like, oh, when I'm, you know, when I get older, I'll just turn up and I'll just play. Like, it'd be fine. <laughs> but um, it's really, it is, she's obviously very tenacious. But with her being born in Austria 1940s, did she, did she have any connection to the jewellery business before? Or did she... No, not that. That's, not know. that I. Not that I've seen in in any like family and things like that. No, but always an interest in design and in particular very inspired by um, by what she what she views and sees in Europe. So you you know when you think about inlays and you think about the way that gemstones are used you automatically think of the marble floors that you see in Rome and also the way in which um, micro-mosaics are used in ancient Roman jewellery and architecture. So, and we know that she spent a lot of her, like her design training, her artistic training in Italy. So, you know, a lot of those ideas that she had is, is very much inspired by, her life yeah you can see that kind of lush chunky kind of roman type of style subtly in it now not not directly obviously but and if you had to uh if you were to get one piece of angela coming because i know you've said to me before that you really really like them what what would it be uh it would definitely be the oval positive negative earrings I don't care in what inlay. I'd have whatever they've got, like whatever's available. Love the black jade, uh, in particular in love with the mother of pearl because I think that it goes with everything. But I've even seen um, turquoise ones before and I would not throw them away for anything. (laughs) (laughs) And I think today in the jewellery business, uh, in Ireland, like, for example, she's not, very well known not super popular her jewelry i know in certain countries in europe in the netherlands i know she's very popular kind of scandinavia as well a bit so it's it's just that certain style i suppose um but i i agree with you she's getting more and more popular every single year and you know if I think she will become known as one of Tiffany's best designers. And to to leave her and then allow you to go on to your designer, what she said that was most important to her was, or the most difficult thing about jewellery design is finding the balance between the moment that you're in and the fashion moment that you're in, um, but yet making it timeless. So something of your time, that transcends into timelessness. And I think that is super difficult to do, especially if you think about the 1980s and the 1970s. How do you make something from the 1980s or the 1970s timeless? Yet she was able to do that. So I think she was able to actually do what she set out to do, was, which was make something of her time timeless. I think that's a very high standard to try and get to and like the balance that you need for that is is pretty challenging because again like it's a business so she has to make what's going to sell then and there or else she's not going to be able to make anything so and then obviously make it timeless is, is I suppose that's the that's probably that's probably the piece that maybe separates a lot of designers who are maybe popular to becomes ones that are like you know legendary or whatever is that yeah. they're they they transcend time. Well, at least thank you. That was a very compelling argument in favor of Angela Cummings. Um, 
hopefully it stands up all right, but you know. Um, I suppose, actually the, the designer that, um, that I'm gonna go with, I think, and I love listening to your stories about Angela Cummings, and some of them actually struck me as somewhat similar to this designer in some ways, but then this lady's background that I'm going with is actually totally different. So there's, while there's going to be a lot of similarities that you see, they actually come from totally different places as well. So it's, uh, it'll be an interesting comparison. But I am going to go with uh, a designer who comes from a very, very long line of jewelers, but who set up, uh, well, having worked for her family business for a while, actually went out on her own and did her own thing. And, and I, when I was looking into this, it, the decision that she took, I think, was... A very brave one but I also think that she kind of had to do it actually so um, but the, the lady I'm talking about is Marina Bulgari oh, yes the name Bulgari you'll recognize that one uh, in fact we did an episode on Bulgari before in season four uh, or season three even I think uh, for in our season firm favorites we did an episode on Bulgari you can look it up it's a very interesting episode I'm sure but Marina Bulgari uh, or what her, her jewelry brand is called Marina B. So she, unlike Angela Cummings, she obviously comes from one of the most famous jewelry houses in the world. Uh, her grandfather was Sartorius Bulgaris, who actually founded Bulgari. Uh, he was Greek and he obviously moved to Italy where Bulgari is today. And so her father was Constantino Bulgari and he was, along with his brother, was... Uh, ran the Bulgari firm after their grandfather died. Uh, and then when she was growing up, Marina Bulgari, she trained, she went to, she actually studied in England, um, but she had a strong aptitude for art and design, as you might imagine, but also mathematics. So she kind of had this kind of like left side, right side brain thing going on. So, um, you know, and that will come true in her, into her quintessential style, which, which I'll get to in a few minutes. So. She studied in England, came back to Italy, joined the family firm. Her father died then in 1973, and her and her sister, Anna, took over the Bulgari firm, along with three of their cousins. Um, so anyone who knows anything about family business will tell you that <laughs> five <laughs> chefs in the kitchen is going to be a lot, right? And what, Yeah, no, but it is. like That's, that's a lot. It's a lot of people who will well, want to get... Well, it's even more, I think, so when it's cousins and not brothers and sisters, because even brothers and sisters is hard, but, um, like, extended family on top of that, I think can be even more difficult because, you know, you can be a bit more, like, candid with um, brothers and sisters, yes. but with cousins it can be a little bit more difficult to politically navigate that yeah like what like a lot of people i'm sure listen to this are have been exposed to family business but basically what happens what can happen is no matter how professional you are maybe you've worked somewhere else you've trained somewhere else when you go work with your family your cousins your sisters your brothers basically you descend into a pack of four-year-olds uh, <laughs> no that's it your your relationships that you had when you were four and five basically never really change so <laughs> you kind of assume that kind of status quo which but when it comes to business then it gets more tricky right so but think of it so they've got the two sisters and they got the three cousins her sister gets married and has a family leaves the business so it's just her then and the three cousins so she was like outnumbered probably uh you know in terms of getting her they tried to kind of because so she had this mathematics thing, right? So they were trying to get her to do the accounts and be in the administrative department only, more or less. They were trying to kind of pigeonhole her to that. She obviously didn't enjoy that. Uh, and then only a few years later, so 1973, um, when she took over, in 1977, she founded Marina B. So four, four years, basically. Um, now, she was young enough uh, when she left. She was actually... She was born in 1932, so she was actually 40, uh, 45, 45 when she set up Marina B. Um, you know, so obviously she, she has a good amount of experience in jewelry business, which I think is important that she wasn't, she wasn't, she had learned from her family and how to run a business. So she had all that. 
Um, she first set up her first shop then in 1978 after doing loads and loads of fairs all around Europe. She set her first shop in 1978 in Geneva. And then following that, there was Milan, Paris, New York. Um, subsequently, and this is just to give you a background of Marina B before we get into her style of jewellery, 1999, she sold all of her designs and her business to Ahmed Fetehahi. I hope I said that right. I don't think I did. But uh, we're not having a good day for pronunciation here anyway. So, um, you know, and included in that were over 12,000 drawings that she had. So she had a huge archive. A lot of these things weren't even made yet. So when her designs started to become really, really popular, I mean, they were popular in her day, but <laughs> the, like Angela Cummings, the longer time goes on, the more recognized and appreciated they're becoming. Um, so there is a serious... It's like, you know, undiscovered wealth of jewellery design in those 12,000 pages. So, um, 2011, then the company was sold to Paul Lubetsky of Windsor Jewellers, which, funny enough, in 2011, just after, uh, just after uh, they acquired it, actually, it was a few years after, I actually went to Windsor Jewellers. Uh, I was actually looking for a job, believe it or not. And uh, they were talking about this big deal, this Marina B deal that they did. They just got all the books and stuff. And um, like there was a real buzz around the office there. I remember it well. And uh, I just walked in unannounced and kind of asked for a job. I very nearly got one. The only problem, the only reason I didn't is that they didn't, uh, they just had an employee who, who they had to get a visa for. And they had a nightmare with it, apparently, and didn't get it. So they're like, oh, no, I can't do that again. So... Anyway, and then following that in 2017, it was sold sold again to Gary Bedriada. Uh, and now that's who is with it today. And you can see, if you look at Marina B online now, there's a lot of new energy. And they're, they're, they've are they're got different lines. They, they've become quite commercial, which always happens to these. So they've got like, you know, the kind of entry level lines and, and so on. But they've also, they're dipping into these archives, looking to design these special pieces as well. So, um I mean, she must have been doing a lot of designs to have a, a, a you know, 12,000 items. But that's kind of the history of it. Now, let's get to the good part, the really, really juicy part, which is, again, similarities to Angela Cummings. You know, she was a similar time period. You know, when you think of her first store was 1978, so she was also 1980s, more or less, for most of her career. And again, as you said, nothing in the 1980s was small. The jewellery was big, right? Um, <laughs> Well, the diamonds were small, but everything else was big. Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. nobody could afford diamonds at that time. But um, they used lots of little diamonds to make them look like they, everything was big. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but they did. They did. Yeah. But that's funny. Is that because the, the, a lot of the stones that Marina B used, and it obviously did use diamonds, right? Uh, but she also used a lot of like rubellites, things like that. So big, big stones. And I think to understand, so let's talk about our quintessential style now. So my opening statement in their quintessential style would be, that you have to understand a little about about Bulgari to understand Marina B. So, so again, I'd listen, go back to our firm favorite season, and, and, and you know when you get a chance and have a listen to the Bulgari episode. But Bulgari, you know, in the seventies and eighties and sixties, seventies, eighties, big gold jewelry, lots of different semi-precious stones. They didn't just go after, you know, the sapphires, the emeralds, the rubies, which historically Bulgari would have done. They started using big, big turquoises, corals that they cut on cabochon, amethyst, citrines, you know, big colourful stones cut on cabochon, um, which I think appealed to Marina B. Now, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. So obviously she, she's trying to be, they're trying to get her to be the accountant and she's kind of has this artistic drive. Um, maybe that was where some of the issues arrived. Um, so yeah, she loved these bold colours, but she also liked geometric lines. So while she did have these, you know, voluminous voluptuous stones she also did have this slight kind of more slightly more geometric than bulgari in the 70s and 80s yeah so these sloping curves mixed with the bold colors these big gemstones and geometric lines that's kind of that's kind of the the palette of inspiration she drew for perfect for the glitz and the glamour of the 1980s some of her clients were elizabeth taylor sophia loren grace kelly uh, and today her jewellery is worn by Rihanna, Alicia Keys, and uh, J-Lo, or Affleck, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, she's always J-Lo anyway. But uh, a couple of things in her quintessential style to bear in mind. She had, she used a lot of black gold, and she loved collars, like big, big gold collars with gemstones in them. She wanted her jewellery to be, like, quite 
easy to wear. So one really cool thing about Marina B's jewellery is that they've she's got these really distinctive clasps that are very easy to take on and off. And funny, I was in the shop yesterday with someone trying on bracelets and literally one of them, this lady could get on and off no bother and the other one struggled with. So, you know, it actually is really important to be able to take on and off your jewellery. Now, Cartier, love bangle. That's a totally different thing altogether. Uh, yeah. An interesting fact about the Cartier Love Bangle is that in the New York General Hospital, uh, whatever it's called, they actually have all of the uh, Cartier Love Bangle screwdrivers in there because people hurt their arm, break their arm, and they can't get the bangles off. So they actually have a stock of them there. Anyway, back to Mar- back to Marina B. Um, so we're talking big collars, you know, black gold, big colorful gemstones, but the really interesting thing about marina b and it kind of reminds me slightly of angela cummings as well that she pioneered that inlay set obviously other people did it but you know she's you know she really pioneered it and got quite famous for it marina b also was very interested in gemstone cut and she actually designed her own gemstone and it's if i was giving someone a trade tip how to spot a piece of marina b it would be to look for this particular type of gemstone cut and it was called the chestnut cut. And you're probably thinking, what chestnut cut? I, I actually can't picture a chestnut either in my head, but um, it basically looks sort of like a mix between sort of a triangle, a pear shape, and almost a heart shape gemstone. It's very, it's it's not as, it's it doesn't have like a, a cleft in it, like a, a heart shape. It's like that part was filled in and it's more overly uh, than a triangle. So it's like a... So it's like a chestnut. Yes, it's like a chestnut, but <laughs> if you, yeah, but if you say to someone, thanks for clarifying that, Elise. Yeah, it's really, but no, it's like a chestnut, but it's, it's. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. It's like a, it's almost like a fat teardrop. There fat, you go. fat teardrop. Google it, look it up. It's quite distinctive. And if you memorize that and you're looking around, you see jewelry that looks with that has this gemstone. It's typical Marina B. Another classic one she had was a, a panu, which is. French word that means tire and it was inspired by the oversized what, what was that called again Matthew the panou <laughs> I actually don't know if that's the correct pronunciation s'il il a des français qui, uh, qui écoute notre podcast s'il vous plaît dis-moi si c'est bien mais. Um, but no it, it's inspired by the oversized wheels of uh, aircraft so if you actually look at them they do look like aircraft wheels and they've got kind of this big large it's it's got depth to it as opposed to also being round uh you know width and uh height and also then usually has a, an inlay of a stone in the middle of it to kind of give that that uh the middle part of the airline yes so um that's very distinctive for her so i think the, the really cool thing about her style though is it kind of resembles bulgari so she's got that kind of timelessness but it is definitely distinctively her as well uh, and the final thing i'll say the really really distinctive piece the piece that i talk about of uh, marina bees as she's called uh is her terry choker that was worn by sophia loren definitely i would look that up she actually had two of them she had one that was multi-strand onyx kind of choker with big rubellite and then she had another one that was pearl so it was like almost like the negative positive now she wore them at different times obviously but a very striking piece big chunky beautiful big gemstone and well worth a look this is going to be hard for everybody, although I am biased towards uh, Angela Cummings. Um, Marina B is still a, a worthy opponent to my Angela. But um, if I was going to cross-examine you, which I am, about Marina B, um, would you say that if you were searching for a piece today, would you favor a marina b piece over a bulgari piece Mm. that's a tricky one because marina b is definitely on an upward trajectory at the moment yeah the bulgari pieces now are like at their peak so so i think you you have an opportunity to maybe you might get a find you might be searching through a car boot sale in the French Riviera. And I don't think, I don't know if they do them there, but a car boot sale somewhere. And you might, you might find a piece of Marina B maybe. 
anything that's Bulgari is going to be catalogued. It's going to be well known. You're not going to get a, a, a bargain with it. But I think for me personally, I would go with Marina B piece. I would go with, I would look for one of her classic pieces. She didn't make, she mainly did them with the, like some semi-precious gemstones. I'd look for one of the ones that had the really fine sapphires and so She did some super high-end pieces as well. And for me, those would be the ones that I would go for. Um, and as you said, it is a tough choice, totally Marina B. But um, no, it's not. No, Andrew Combs is brilliant, and you put and really did some great information about her designs and some stories about her life. So I leave it up to the listeners to see what they think and which one they go for. Yes. So uh, to to really put it out there to all of you listeners, we'd like to leave it in your capable hands. Do let us know either on Instagram. I'm going to put polls up on there to see who is the winner of the design challenge here today. Uh, Angela Cummings or Marina B. The hashtag, dual duel. Hashtag Angela Cummings for the win. Um, and we'll also uh, put, it up, put it up on TikTok to see if you have any... Um, which one of our designers you prefer. Please do let us know. We'd love you to get in contact with us so that um, Angela can win. But the second jewel of today, <laughs> Elise, people are feel, feel free to choose whatever you want. It's really your choice. Don't let Elise pressure you into anything. Um, the second jewel today, though, is a really important one, and it is our Gem Trivial Pursuit. Okay, so Matthew, our gem trivial pursuit today is around the number 40 because it is our 40th episode, our 40th anniversary. So 40th anniversary edition. So good luck, Matthew. Good luck to you too, Elise. Um, Because you're going to need it. And question one. May the best antique dealers win. Powers Court Townhouse opened 40 years ago Mm -hmm. this year in 1982. Yes. Is that true or false? Uh, That's false. It was 1981. I told you it was easy, Ross. Thank you. Ding! That was a a tricky question, though. You know, that could have, yeah. yeah. Two. It's a tough one to get that. Which of these creatures has 40 teeth okay is it ross a dog a giraffe or a hippo i don't think it's a a hippo because i think they've got a few big ones at the front a dog possibly a dog you have a you don't have all the time in the world matthew it's probably gonna be we don't have 40 years to wait well, we won't mention number 40, will we? But um, I don't think a giraffe would have that many. Maybe more like a horse. Okay, uh, so which one are we going Is Ross for? actually an option? No, or not? he's yeah. not. I'm going to go with a dog. A giraffe, is it? No, it's a hippo. a hippo. No, it's not a hippo. It is. They have ones at the back or something then, do they? It's a hippo. They have 40 teeth. Hold on, that's it. So that's, that's f- one correct that question- and that's one false. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that incorrect. question could be flawed because a hippo could have lost a tooth. Okay. <laughs> Question three. What do the letters WD stand for in WD40? <laughs> hint, which you shouldn't be giving, but hint anyway. I heard this on the radio today. The Ross. 40 stands for 40th formula. So I actually heard this on the radio the other day. They were talking about all the uses of WD-40 and they have some pretty wild uses. Uh, I don't even know what it is. It's like a, it's like a oil kind of thing you use. If you like the key is, if a key is not working in the lock, you spray WD-40 and it loosens it up. But it has loads of things. It can like remove chewing gum and it does literally loads of things. Okay, lovely. But D- what does the WD-40? The 40 is the 40th attempt at it. WD-40. I have no idea, to be honest. Uh, Come on, just throw it out there. Like water distilled or something? Nope. 
What is it? But that was close, but not. It's water displacement. Ah, no, that was no, a wild cheese. No, no, you don't get it. Ah, here, you half, point, half, half point, half point. You don't get point. it. You don't get it. Sorry, Sorry. mate. No. Well, okay, look, we'll, so we'll that, revisit that because I think I no, think no, we're not revisiting point. anything. That was a really it's good incorrect. honest guess. It's yeah. incorrect. And the hippo one. It's stupid. incorrect. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Question four: What is forty squared? Oh, well, I should get this now. Forty squared. So it's gonna be it's gonna be sixteen something anyway. So this is sixty forty. So forty times ten would be four hundred times four would be sixteen hundred. So it's got to be sixteen hundred. Bing! Correct. Thank you. That accounting did something for you, Matthew. Question five: Which gemstone is given as a gift for the fortieth wedding anniversary? This is not going to be good because I don't know if I'm going to get this. Actually, <laughs> you of course are going to get this. this is easy. Ruby? Yes. <laughs> Thank God. Bing. I was like, is that thirty or forty? So that means you got three out of five, Matthew. Three and a half out of five. No, no, Good no, 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 no. Three out of five. Ross, that is even Ross is holding jury. up three fingers. He's holding up three fingers, right. which means three. He's not yeah. holding up three and a half. Fingers. Maybe he thinks he's in the Cub Scouts. I don't know. Look, <laughs> right. Anyway, right. Okay. So for our gem trivia <laughs> pursuit. Elise Ketcher, I know, I know you've been training for the last few, our last I haven't. I haven't 12 been weeks training. when we've been recording this series. I would not have got hardly any of those questions right that you had there. Right, well, you'll get a few of these, and Ross is obviously, I know, he's giving you a few soft questions there. I don't know what you've, you've bullied him into this, but um, but nevertheless, we will continue, and we'll let the, 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 their listeners decide whether this is a just case. Elise Ketcher, for our 40th anniversary edition of Gem Trivial Pursuit, question one. There are a total of 140,000 seconds. In he can't 40 even read it. How am I going to get Sorry, sorry. Just, 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 to, just to clarify, no, because <laughs> it's the party end. You only have 10 seconds to answer, okay? Why do I only so, have 10 true, seconds to answer and you had like, oh, the dog true has or false, 40 teeth. True or false. Him. <laughs> this is a true or false. She's 50% chance of getting this right no matter what happens. So it's only 10 seconds. There are a total of 140,000 seconds in 40 hours. True or false? True. Ah, it's false. It's 144,000 seconds. That was unlucky. Ugh. All right. That's too bad. Oh, my. Question. How did I not know that? Yeah, it's really, I don't know. We're all in that. I don't know what the schools are. Okay, in question two. I don't know what the schools are. Give me another chance. Teaching. Give me another chance. Go on. How, this is, you should get this now. How is 40 represented in Roman numerals? 40 represented in Roman numerals. It's. One 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 X, or is it X one 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 one? No, it's it's one V X. I think that would end up being five actually. No no uh, no, five is a V. Yeah. And then if you have a one before it, it means that it's a four. Four. Yeah. And then an X after it is ten. That's a reasonable thought process, yeah, I think, but is that your final answer? It's around the other way. Is it X? Are you asking me or telling me? One, four. Uh, one, V. X, one, V. X, one, V. It's X, L. And the rationale for that... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> rationale. I don't want to hear the rationale. Question three. Don't go into the rationale. We don't have time for the rationale. I got it wrong. Sorry, guys. I didn't know that L, blah, blah, blah. Next. Question three. So, so far, we're on a... What are we on there? Oh, zero. Okay. So, <laughs> so who, was, who was the only British monarch to reign for exactly 40 years? No pressure, but if you don't get this, you're out. It's going to be a George or a Charles. 
Ugh. Georgia. Georgia. Okay. I had a multiple choice for this, so we'll give you a multiple choice. It is a George. It's definitely not George the Fifth. I'm going to go with George the Third. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> what made you pick that? Because George the... It can't be George the Fifth because George the Fifth is um, Queen Elizabeth's father and he only reigned for like less than 10 years. Yes. And it couldn't be the George before him because that was his father and his father did it. So it had to be... It couldn't be the first George either. So it had to be second. It had to be second or third. So I went with third. Excellent. Okay. Yes. Yes. I've got one. I've got one. You're, you're going to get these. These two are literally give me. Okay. Go. Next. Question four in our 40th anniversary edition of Gem Trivial Pursuit. In a game of tennis, what is another name for the scoreline 40 40? Deuce. Yes. That's so easy. So easy. Question five. Definitely one I would not have got. Who recorded the song 40 Shades of Green in 1971? Oh, I'm not going to get this. We've been told that this is a question that happened before in Gem Trivial Pursuit. You definitely know this person. Uh, so, 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 is it UB40? 40 Shades of Green. Let's, let's play Elise. Is it UB40? No, 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 no. We'll just... We'll just we'll, play, we'll, play, it, we'll play you the song. I don't even know what the song is. 40 Shades of Green. Hold on, we're just letting it get it on the old interweb net here. Let's just see if she recognizes it. Okay. We're still arguing about who wrote this song. I wrote it in 1959. This is... Yes, I did. I close my eyes. That's all you get. I mean, Johnny Cash. Ah, like, okay. you, get it, you could have just, like, put the first, the first tiny little, the, him just saying, hello, everybody, and I would have known who it was. He's not Sean Connery, right? But, um, <laughs> but okay, so that's three. That means we are in a tiebreaker. But you basically <laughs> gave that to me. <laughs> yeah, well, I did, yeah. I mean, it, look, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just that, you know, I like our tiebreakers. And okay, also, I wanna, so tiebreaking, tiebreaking. I bet she's going to win this now after the tiebreaker. Anyway. No, because it's going to be some kind of length thing, which I won't know anything about. Oh, how long is a piece of string? I don't know. You're going down. Here's you fighting for your half a point when I can barely. <laughs> At least the people know I won that. Anyway. <laughs> no, they don't. The people will know. Okay. <clears throat> what is... What is... Minus 40 Celsius converted to Fahrenheit. Oh, crap. What is minus 40 Celsius in Fahrenheit? Uh, in, in Fahrenheit. Uh, you oh. go first, Matthew. Oh, Last time I did this and I went first and then you were like, eh. At least I think you should go first. No, 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 no. You're going first. No. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, this is tricky now. Minus 40 Celsius. That's really cold. Um, I don't want to give my rationale for it. I don't um, know. I have. No, this is the worst thing in the world because every time I'm over with my sister, I'm fine if it's in positives. But once we go into negatives, I'm like. Can I ask you one hint, Ross? It's not uniform, is it? No hints. No hints. <laughs> he doesn't know. Because he doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, there's just an answer, and you either get that answer or not. Five seconds. Five. Four, no, no, stop three. I give you a million years. What? <laughs> I'm gonna go with. She really wants to win this. Fortunately, I, I had a weird memory of this from somewhere. Um, now I hope I could be wrong now, but. Oh, at least just write the answer, will you? <laughs> okay, so, so I'm showing my answer. At least it's gone for a minus twenty. I have gone for a minus forty. Yes! <laughs> uh, the correct answer is 
Well, as you probably <laughs> gathered, Elise just, Elise just threw her uh, piece of paper at me with the answer. The correct answer is minus 40. But calm down, Elise. It's obvious, don't, don't be a sore loser. I'm don't, not. I'm not. Don't be a sore loser. Um, but they're not. They don't go up in equal increments. So anyway, look, it, it was it was a tough tough competition. Um, not you know, really. I was, I was. I mean, it's always hard because the questions are, are are specific to people, and you might know, you might not. And they're only easy if you know the answers, as they say, on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. So, um, we are gonna wrap it up there. Look, it's been it's been this season. I think out of all of them, was fab. It was fab. It was. To do it anyway with you two was a, was a real pleasure. So, um, you know, off to Finland, to France, to France again. You know, the, the few <laughs> the few things that popped up to try and disrupt us. Air strikes, COVID, all sorts of things really getting in our way. But we got there in the end. So thank you both very much. Elise Ketcher, my trusty co-host, and Ross Hannon, the fabulous producer of Tape Deck and, of course, of Gem Pursuit. And of, most of all, I'd like to thank everyone who listened. I really hope you enjoyed us. Um, we, of course, are going to put posts up about our dual duel to see which one you preferred, Marina B, of course, or Angela Cummings, whatever. Um, and <laughs> uh, look, we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, on TikTok. Don't be afraid to get in touch as well, even by email. Our email is experts at courtville.ie. And if you have any suggestions or feedback that you'd like us to hear, we would absolutely be love to hear it. And, you know, we can try and incorporate that into future seasons that we do as well. So, look, it's been an absolute roller coaster in pursuit of these gem switches. So I hope you enjoyed it. And we look forward to episode 41 with all of you. Chat to you all very, very soon. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>